Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future. My name is Romina Bandura. I'm a senior fellow with the Project on Prosperity and Development at CSIS, and I'm guest hosting for Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Priya Vora, the Chief Executive Officer of the Digital Impact Alliance, or DIAL. With over 20 years of experience, Priya is a leader in advancing financial inclusion and digital development. We're here today to discuss the role of digital transformation and digital public infrastructure, or DPI for its acronym, in global development. Priya, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you. Wonderful. So before we dive into the topic, I was just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this wonderful career of financial inclusion and digital development? Well, I'm reluctant to share this little tidbit on a public podcast, but some people know that I started my career right after college at Enron. (laughs) So I worked in the financial sector, but just in a different lens, I'd say. And when it went bankrupt, I spent some time really thinking about what did I really want to do with my life? And I loved finance. I loved thinking about banking products and went back to my old high school in India to teach for a while and ended up just taking a hard right turn in my career at the young age of whatever, 25. And I, after grad school, got recruited to the Gates Foundation. And at that time, the Gates Foundation was asking itself, well, what beyond health should we be thinking about? You know, what kinds of things really have great development impact? And through a very long consultative process, we landed on financial inclusion. At that time, we called it microfinance. Actually, I think we called it microcredit in those days still. As really a game changer for families and particularly women, that if more women have an opportunity to save money safely or borrow money when life presents new opportunities or new financial needs. But having access to formal financial products can really help smooth consumption, can help women put their kids into school. And I always say you can't work at the Gates Foundation without gaining a new appreciation for technology. Of course, Bill Gates himself is just the greatest optimist about how advancements in science and technology can be useful to some of the world's most pressing needs. And that's where I really started to get into the world of mobile banking. And I feel like once you're in the digital world, you just keep falling in deeper. So I got excited about digital, went on to start the digital team at USAID, which really tried to advance connectivity and the use of data and geospatial data throughout our work, of course, digital payments, and so much more is a much wider purview around the power, but also the risks of digital. And then, of course, when I left government, I found myself back in more of the nonprofit sector, and I'm really happy to be leading Dial here. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit 
about Dial? What does it do? So Dial is an alliance of some of the biggest funders who care about how digitization is impacting the poor, marginalized communities. And I think what we know today more than any other time is that these really powerful systems, technology and use of data can be amazing accelerators of Mm -hmm. social and economic goals, but they carry huge risks in terms of surveillance, in terms of corporate monopolies becoming political monopolies, in terms of cyber threats, in terms of misinformation. So our role at Dial, we're not the -the on-the-ground doers, but we think of ourselves as an alliance that's trying to shine the light on the ways in which funders and policymakers can really try to make sure that the future of digital is one that works for all people. Wonderful, wonderful. And within digital transformation, there's this growing issue of infrastructure for digitalization. And this new concept, I would say, of digital public infrastructure has gained traction. How would you define it? And what is new about DPI? So in some ways, it's not new at all. In fact, it's very old. And I think there have been in the past, historically, just recognition that infrastructure that's as open as possible, reliant on open protocols, has really served society well. The email you use might be different than the email I use, and yet you can still send mail to me, right? It's fully interoperable. Yeah, exactly. And it's not kind of a zero-sum game that the more email (laughs) one email provider uses, then the less another can be provided. So we've seen that just in that example, there's great benefit to interoperable systems that talk to one another, and it allows for a real competition to ride on top. You might use this, I might use that. It speaks to what we prefer, the provider we trust the most, or whose interface is the best. And it's all designed so that I, as a consumer, can make some choices. And I think DPI at the heart of it is really kind of taking that ethos and expanding it to all things that we already know are in use in our daily lives. So how do we design digital payment systems? So you can use one thing, I can use another, and they can still interoperate. And that's sadly not the way in which a lot of payments are designed today. It's much more a zero-sum game. So I think the ethos of DPI has been around for a long time, and yet without real leadership from the government and from, frankly, developer communities, what we've seen, unfortunately, is this kind of rise of systems where they don't talk to one another, where proprietary and commercial interests end up meaning that data gets held in silos and there's not the fluid exchange of information as you would want to see. So it's a new term. I think everyone's starting to try to land on exactly what it means, but I think it's fair to think of it as really an approach, an ethos, and that it could be applied to many, many different layers of digital infrastructure upon which many services then can thrive and you see more competition for consumers at the higher end. 
Yes, exactly. And I read about when we had several discussions here at, at CSIS on DPI and the three main building blocks, which are identity, you mentioned interoperability, and you mentioned a payment system. All those things have been developing for some time, but what would you say out of those building blocks do we really have to put the accelerator on? Ramina, you're asking a good question. I think what's really easy in these conversations is to get really stuck on the technology itself. How is this building block designed or that one plug into this one or whatever? And that's all very important stuff. But at the end of the day, the whole reason we're doing this is because we care about people. So the best design technology systems, they can be designed for inclusion and with data minimalization and privacy from the get-go and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, technology is just part of the question. I think the real things that we need to be accelerating is our greater understanding of how these technology systems are governed mm-hmm. for transparency. What are the systems for redressal? If I have concerns around how my information is used, How do I raise my hand and file a complaint? How do I make sure there's responsive adjudication of that issue? How do we have these safeguards in place? How do policymakers and funders know that people are being positively impacted in the way that really gives us confidence on how these systems can advance social and economic goals? All of that is, in fact, the hardest stuff. And we have to keep in mind But the whole point of this DPI movement is to make sure more people are included and they get benefit from the digital future, Mm -hmm. that these systems are designed for trust and transparency and accountability and individual empowerment and control. And so much less of the conversation has to be around the technology and the building blocks and much more on these other factors. Right, right. So going back to where we started, you were talking about Dial being a platform and a collaboration, but I suspect there are many players in this space of DPI. How is Dial approaching this issue and what are other buckets within your work? Yeah, well, we're in this wonderful position where we're not competitive with anybody. All we're trying to do is really shine the light on like interesting and good practices that are coming out of all parts of the world in terms of how technology and data are fueling inclusion and trust. So we really relish this opportunity and we hosted workshops earlier this year and we got to see how Djibouti was informing some of the new ideas coming out of Kenya and everyone has something to learn from everyone. So it's really quite a luxury to be in this space where we get to collaborate with many, learn from so many, and really curate conversations so that good practices can be exposed. I'd say that not only are we focused on how systems are designed in a more technical way to drive inclusion and trust, but a lot of our focus going forward is going to be around how do we better measure and what are the methods for understanding impact for people. There's a lot of supply side indicators out there. Does someone have an ID? Are they connected to the internet? Do they have a mobile phone? Those are all supply side things, but there's a lot less around 
issues of trust and transparency. There's a lot less out there in terms of the ecosystem. Is there a data protection law in place? Does that law bestow rights to people, portability rights, things like that? So I think we want to be really pushing the pedal on issues of understanding impact for people. And as the world evolves, I think the wonderful thing about running Dial is our mandate can evolve. So if in a few years, the real topics of concern around quantum or something else, then those are the issues we get to explore. It's really quite a wonderful place to be. Wonderful. You mentioned that after Enron, you were at USAID. And I know that USAID launched its digital strategy three or four years ago in 2020, and you were part of the digital team. What do you think USAID or other U.S. government agencies can do to really play a more catalytic role in mobilizing either support or funding for this issue of DPI? What can the U.S. do in this space? Well, there's so much the U.S. can do to make sure that the digital future is one that works for all. So, of course, the U.S. on a legislative front could do a lot to help create new standards and be a beacon on so many issues that are plaguing not only our country, but others. So if we could have better laws and regulations around content and social media on competition policy. There's lots of ways in which we can advance the world and not only the U.S. and legislative measures. I'm not that optimistic, just given the state of Congress. So let's see what happens there. So from a development standpoint, if you look at state aid, MCC, there's still a lot that those arms of government can do. Probably less so on hard infrastructure. And I know there's been so much concern around China and 4G networks and whatever, but I think probably less on infrastructure and maybe more on supporting policy environments and supporting the DPI agenda. And unfortunately, the budget pressures have meant that digital has just often gotten squeezed out of core budgets. It's seen almost as a horizontal, there's no earmark for these issues. So as much as I think there's recognition of the need to engage, the funding is so stifled. And here's what I'll end with. I know that our partners in Africa would love to see more investment and participation from the USG, not in a anti-China way, but in a really constructive way. How do you design the rules and the tools in ways that really underpin democratic norms, that give people more choice, that promote competition, that promote inclusion, all of that? I think there's a real desire to see the USG engage. And it's sadly been more of a defensive anti-China posture and frankly, not with the level of resourcing that the issue deserves. Yeah. And you clearly mentioned at the beginning this issue of governance of digital transformation. And I think maybe this is an area that United States could play a more leading role a little bit on setting the standards for digital transformation within the U.S. and abroad. We have to approach this with 
humility. It's not like we are front runners in terms of e-government services. What the average Ukrainian or Estonia can do in terms of accessing government services is far more than what we can do here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We have to be humble about how antiquated our approach to competition is. I mean, I know that's changing. So we have to approach this conversation with humility. And I think if we can do that and really be constructive partners, both learning from what other countries are doing and not coming in saying, we're going to set the standards, you know, (laughs) like let's be real. No one's trying to mimic the full aspects of our digital society here, maybe some aspects, but certainly not all. But if we can come in as real constructive partners, I think there's a lot we can do to support norms and standards and the policy environment that really build trust, that promote democratic norms, that foster trade with our allies and with partners, ensure the value of data can be more broadly beneficial to a whole host of stakeholders and for issues that are so pressing like climate change. So I think if we show up in the right way and in the right tables, there's so much the U.S. can do. Wonderful. So to wrap up, I always like to look into the future. And how do you see digital public infrastructure evolving in the future? Or what do you want to see of this approach? I think my hope is that it's less around my hope for what is digital public infrastructure. But I think what I'm really cautiously optimistic about is that the kind of new imperative of digital public infrastructure really creates funding and policy investments that try to close the gap on the digital divide and try to promote leadership within government to stave off some of the real concerns that I listed earlier in terms of the risks of exclusion, the risks of data hoarding and data monopolization, and so on and so forth. I think what we've seen so often is technology can be a democratizing force, but more often It exacerbates social norms and power imbalances in really unhealthy ways. So what I'm just so hopeful we can do is harness this moment so that we can build the real know-how and the political fortitude to make sure that we're not repeating history, that we can really accelerate the policies and the technology building blocks that really make for inclusion and trust and unwinding very unhealthy power imbalances. Wonderful. I like your final thoughts and your positive message. So with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. And thank you so much for again, joining us here today in this podcast. And we welcome you to really join CSIS in the future for other events and podcasts. So thanks a lot, Priya. Thanks, Romina. We'll see you soon. Wonderful. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 